to change the way that we view and treat children's mental health. That's exactly why we brought Dr. Rowe here. She is on a mission to make that happen. Welcome to the Special Education Inner Circle Podcast. I'm your host, Katherine Witcher, and I have with me today, Dr. Roseanne. Thank you for being here, Dr. Roseanne. Well, Katherine, I'm so excited to have this conversation. Our kids' mental health is more important than ever. So you recently wrote a book called It's Going to Be Okay, and you have extensive experience in the IEP process. So our conversation today, we're going to bring it all together for all of our parents, teachers, admins, and therapists about how do we really work with what's happening in our world when it comes to children's mental health, family mental health, and this IEP system that hasn't quite caught up to what we need. So will you just tell us a little bit about your book and why did you write it? Yeah. Well, first of all, I titled it, It's Gonna Be Okay, because it's the first thing I say to every parent that I work with. Because when you have a kid that's struggling, when you have a kid that's special needs or struggling with mental health, we need to hear that it's gonna be okay. And you can just see parents' body language change when I say that, because I'm a special needs mom myself, and there isn't time when you're not worried about your kid in some way, shape, or form, even if your kid is momentarily struggling during this pandemic. And, you know, I wrote this book, uh, I've been in mental health for 30 years and really just been pushing the limits and trying to get parents to understand that there are no limits to what we can do for our kids and that there is science-backed methods, techniques, and therapies they're just not hearing about. And so my subtitle, my book is proven ways to improve your child's mental health. And, you know, many people get to me after a very long, unnecessary road of going down rabbit hole after rabbit hole, trying to help get help, you know, with therapists at school, medication, all these different ways that they're being guided, but yet their kid is struggling. They're, they're unfocused. They're unhappy. They're doing poor in school. They're difficult at home, whatever's going on. And, you know, they're often get to me and say, well, why didn't I hear about that changing my kid's diet could be different? Why didn't I hear about tweaks in parenting can have a dramatic effect? Why didn't I hear about things like neurofeedback and biofeedback? Well, Our system is not set up in a way where this information is getting out to parents because the people who are disseminating it just don't know enough. And what I have done, and it's going to be okay, is I want parents to have just this resource in front of them by their nightstand. And I've done all this research for you. There's over 40 pages of research citations so people can understand, but feel good that these are safe and highly effective ways to change behavior, to actually reduce and reverse symptoms. Um, And like I said, when you are struggling with hope and belief, there's, it's very hard to see your kid getting well. And in this book, you know, I talk about the eight pillars of mental health and I actually call them the eight pillars of hope and healing um, because I want to restore that and give parents really simple, actionable ways to create that change for their child and their family. I love that so much. And, you know, a lot of times the parents start to do the work behind the scenes. They're going to read your book. They're going to see all of these different solutions. They're going to try some things. And sometimes their hope is stolen because the school won't listen. They feel like nobody is hearing what's happening. And I know that you have experience with bringing some concrete information. So 
share a little bit about, I know we, we just had a conversation with master IEP coaches and special education inner circle. And one of their favorite things is that you shared a little bit about data and graphs and color coding. And <laughs> it sounds funny that we would go from like, yeah. let's have hope and let's talk about mental health and yeah. let's talk about getting help. And then we just don't want to talk about it in a woo kind of way. We're talking about right. concrete information. So share yeah. a little bit about how you take this knowledge and then you put it together to get other professionals to listen to you. Yeah, I think it's really about understanding. And, you know, I've been in both sides of the table. I've, I've been there as a school psychologist, actually all three sides of the table. I've been there as a, as a parent with a kid with a 504. The brief time we went to public school, not that I'm against public school, just didn't work for my older kid or either of my kids. And, um, and I've been there as a school psychologist and I've actually been there as, you know, an evaluator working with families or as an I, I've done a lot of IEEs. And so here's what happens. It's like this in any relationship. We have expectations on both sides. And when we have one person believes one thing and another person believes another, and it doesn't match up, friction is going to result. So one of the biggest barriers that I found, because I was somebody who did evaluations, and was that I came in and educated people and helped them to understand the child. Clearly, I did that with standardized data, but I also did it in a lot of other ways. So I want to educate parents about the ways that they, and, and, and advocates, the ways they can bring data and digestible information to help us better understand the needs and strengths of this kid, right? Because when we have a kid, I always started off meetings when I did evals with parents, like, hey, we're going to talk a lot about the weaknesses, but I want you to know, here's these rock star qualities of your kid. And let's not forget that. But this report has to really help them to understand what's not working so that we can put better uh, accommodations and interventions in place. So data, 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 data. So we have all forms of data. And so number one, we have standardized test data, right? So if we want to start there, and then we'll go down to other forms of data, but you need data to highlight what is working and not working for your kid. So when you have a report, I love, and sometimes I have parents that rework reports. So feel free. I don't mean rework. I mean, they take the data and they plot it on a graph. Okay. So graphs are your friends, people. And you want to graph data past testing plotted against current testing, same measures, right? We can only compare same measures. And I love to color code it. So I love to show it as red when it decreased. Um, and please know I only use percentiles, not standardized scores. And why is that? There's not enough wiggle room. You don't get to see what happens, right? So for example, um, an eight, and a 12 are both in the average range, but an eight is a 25th percentile and a 12 is a 75th. So we wanna show the percentiles, really, really, really important. I often do great equivalents as well. And um, schools will get angry with me because they tell me it's not valid data. That's not true. Data is data and we're gonna talk about that. So I did red, you can do whatever you want, but I did red if it decreased, blue if it improved and then, um, or green. And then uh, sometimes, and if it didn't change at all, I just let it be. 
And I really like for people to see what that was. So that can be academic testing. It could be uh, uh, behavioral rating scores on emotional components. Any form of data can be graphed in the same way. Now, what's another form of data? So I like Likert scales. So when people come to me, they either in person or work with me virtually, we use Likert scales. We chart behaviors, things that people are working on, and we measure them actually every other week, every two to three weeks, we measure it to see where progress is, right? Because I want people to see their own progress. So that simple data could be plotted on a graph and you can look at different things that are going on. And then what are other forms of data? So parents can take videos of their kids doing homework. They can have their kids uh, write a letter um, as to where they're, they're having a hard time and what they think would be helpful if a kid is confident enough, if they're old enough, they could come to an IEP or a 504 meeting and share what where they're struggling. So you have to bring in data and, and yes, standardized data is, is king, okay? It's the gold standard, but don't let anybody tell you you can't bring those other forms of data. Really, really important. And color coding is your friend, people. So- <laughs> I love it. So, and you mentioned from the parent perspective, you mentioned that that you're an expert at providing information through IEEs. I'm going to bring the teacher perspective of one of the best things that you can learn how to do as a teacher is not only learn how to present your own data, but learn what data to ask for, meaning that you need data from the parents to really make this work. One of the best things you can do to advocate for your students and to advocate for yourself to get more resources, to get more tools, to get a better written IEP that you can implement and use your expertise in is for you to master this and not just taking data on the goals, like the current goals, going beyond that. And I don't want you to be that teacher with like 25 clipboards on your wall either. Like really smart about it, especially as we're talking about this concept of mental health and this whole child and all these things that can be done. I mean, there's so much different information that we could be charting. So let's talk a little bit about, um, because this can be overwhelming and we have a lot of different layers that are happening with our children, with our students. We're having, you know, a diagnosis on top of diagnosis on top of diagnosis. And we're trying to figure out how do we prioritize and then how do we even get some things recognized? So maybe you could use some examples of things that, that students are dealing with. We might have trauma with anxiety, with dyslexia, with ADHD, with executive functioning. Like, where do we start? Yeah. Um, Such an amazing question, because I'm going to tell you that pretty much most kids today, this is my 30th year of mental health, have layers. And it's emotional layers. It's it's layers that are impacting their learning, obviously, if they have an IEP or 504. Um, and it's, it's can, you know, physical and, and psychological, right? So it can hit any area, and it often does, right? So if we have any level of distress... Okay, I'm going to tell you that's the first thing you're going to address, which is not what we're doing. Okay, so nothing matters in life if you don't have mental health. And I think we're seeing this in this time of this pandemic. Um, And there's some pretty famous people talking about mental health. And I love it because they're showing you how important it is. Right. So it's not just to say, oh, everybody should be happy. It's literally science. It's about the stress hyperactivation of the nervous system. So once your nervous system is stress hyperactivated in a sympathetic dominant state, 
you are unable to process information in the same way. The frontal lobes are actually designed to go offline, which then means you're not able to think and take action in the same way. So you keep trying to cram in information to a highly distressed, active, you know, a stress activated kid, they're not able to process, right? So when we talk about IEPs, right, plan on your kid, you know, the kid to have, okay, I've got a, um, a math disability, right? Um, you know, autism and uh, anxiety disorder, right? And also throws up, right? Maybe has seizures in there, right? This is pretty standard, right, Catherine? Absolutely. So, right. So if they're distressed in some way, whether they're um, an internalizer or an externalizer, right, the externalizer is always going to get their help and get help because they're disruptive. The internalizer, maybe not. And so we want to focus on that because let's take the brain and think about how the brain learns, right? And then it's really a matter of triaging. What is the area, like, where's the nexus? Like, is it, is it the reading disability that's really driving the anxiety or is it the anxiety that's exacerbating the reading disability? Right. So, you know, and that's, that's not an easy thing to distinguish. I do feel like uh, an eval is very helpful when somebody is stuck. Okay. But it, it, a lot of times it comes through conversation. I would have dialogues both as a school psychologist, both as a private psychologist, and, and you can ask kids questions. So you don't say, are you stressed? <laughs> <laughs> you know, cause the kids are like, what's going on, right? But you know, you can say, you know, where, you know, touch on your body where you feel stressed. And most kids of all ages, adults, you know, they're either gonna point, they're either gonna touch their chest or their head. Sometimes people will say, I feel it all over. Okay. It's a starting point for a conversation. Once we make it physical, we get the sensory component. And then you can say, do you have an idea of a time of day when you're most stressed? Okay, great. Is it before or after lunch? And then you can start figuring it out and then driving it down to individual tasks, right? So if a kid consistently says to me, every time I'm reading or writing, I am feeling stressed, then we know that reading and writing is a big stressor to them. So the question becomes, is it the activity that's triggering it or is it a lack of appropriate instruction? And this really becomes a point of intervention because clearly we have to alter the instruction in some way, but we also need to provide mental health support. So we often do what we think in education without including and asking kids. So you, you have to just be creative in how you ask them. They always know. I, I can ask a five-year-old and I could get so much information from them. It, it's about what are you asking and, you know, and there's a lot of factors, um, but you have to start with what's causing the most disruption. I'm going to tell you that we've become a culture, Catherine. We think we're all immune to stress um, and we are living in the most stressful time and there is nobody that can escape the physical or cognitive ramifications of long-term chronic stress. You cannot accept it.
cannot escape it. No, you can't escape it. And I love that we had a, we had a previous conversation earlier where you described what that child looks like as an internalizer or an externalizer. And when I heard you describe that, um, just the simplicity of what that looks like in a classroom, I was like, oh my gosh, I want teachers to know this because kids are not there in that moment. Yeah. So what does an internalizer do? Somebody who is struggling with this mental health um, and just balancing everything. And then what does an externalizer do? So it doesn't matter what the clinical diagnosis is, whether it's a neurodevelopmental disorder like autism or ADHD or OCD, you know, anxiety, or the kid doesn't have any diagnosis yet. Um, So that is irrelevant. It's about what happens to the nervous system. So when we have these clinical conditions, our nervous system gets overactivated. And there's, when you have a mental health issue, you're going to have two ways that this behavior is going to show up. It's either going to be you're an internalizer and an or an externalizer. So internalizers are kids that typically try really hard to do well. They could be a straight A student. They could be holding it together so hard all day because they may, you know, be people pleasers or perfectionists. These are kids that come up to the cl- uh, teacher and say, um, you know, Mrs. Jones, can you check this over? And then Mrs. Jones is like, you know, Becky, you always get this right. I'm not sure why you're worried, but you always get this right. These are kids that could have frequent erasures. These are could be kids that are correcting other kids in the classroom. These also could be kids that are tearful, um, but not hysterical. Right. So they might be easily, easily, you know, overly sensitive. And and on the internalizer extreme side, these are kids that are completely shut down. These are kids that are refusing to go to school without being angry, um, won't get out of bed. You know, you see this as kids age, their bodies, the physical ramifications that long term chronic anxiety turns into a depression where they really shut down. And then on the other side is our externalizers, which I mentioned before. And these are kids that are verbally or physically aggressive. These are kids that are going to swear. These are kids are going to say, I don't care. You know, these are kids that are going to push other kids. Um, you know, they, they are really difficult. They're always a no. They're never a yes. They're always a no. And they're tough. And they wind up getting help because they're so behavioral. And nobody knows what to do with a really behavioral kid who's non-compliant. These are kids diagnosed with ODD and ADD. And we focus on that component of it, disruptive mood disorder and whatnot. And then there's everything in between. Um, And, you know, kids, what I think there's such a misconception about mental health because we use our grades as a benchmark for people's mental health. So people think, well, my kid's an A student, they couldn't be anxious or depressed or have OCD. Well, most people are very functional with mental health issues and they're not completely shut down, right? So you can be this great student and really just be like, I like to call it a hot mess inside. You can be having intrusive thoughts. You could be on the worry train. You could be feeling awful about yourself. You can be having suicidal thoughts and be highly functional, right? Um, Most people will say when somebody has a full, you know, a, a really high point of distress or what people call a breakdown that the people around them will often say, I didn't know. You know, I, I didn't know because they had friends or they were doing well in school and, and those kind of things. So we have to think about behavior that kids can show themselves differently. And in both of these groups and everywhere in between, 
you're going to see physical signs of anxiety. You're going to see stomach aches, hair pulling, um, you know, vomiting, you know, dark circles under their eyes, sleep problems. I mean, you name it, you're going to see physical signs. So you cannot escape that stress. It's going to show up on a physical way, in a physical way. So let's talk about self-advocacy because one of our things is like, we want to recognize this as parents, as teachers, we want to help support this child. And then we also want to empower them and educate them on what they need and help them get this. I'm also going to put a spin on this as, you know, a lot of times we hear in the IEP process that a child did not get what they needed because they didn't ask for it. They didn't self-advocate. So therefore they didn't get what they needed. So how do we start to teach a child to self-advocate and what advice do you have for a team that might be looking at this as, well, they must not need any help because they're not asking for it. Yeah. So first of all, whenever I was involved, I never allowed for that a goal to say that the student must self-advocate for it, right? These are kids with with executive functioning issues, emotional issues. It, it can't be that that is the reason they get the service, right? But we also need to build independent skills. And this is where it starts. And it starts with the parents. The parents need to teach their kids about their strengths and weaknesses. People come in here, I don't want my kid to know they have ADHD. And I was like, so you don't want your kid to know you have ADHD, but literally no kid on the bus will sit with them. And you think that makes them feel a lot better. No, it doesn't. They know what it is. And I have never in my bazillion years had one kid, when I talk to them about their, their disability, their difficulty, whatever you want to call it, every single time the kid would say to me, Thank God, I thought I was stupid. I mean, literally, that's what every kid would say to me. So why are we letting kids think they're stupid? Why don't we be like, oh, they think I will A to B. And, you know, here's what it is. Here's the challenge. Here's the gift. Let's work it out. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? You've got to get your kid understanding, literally at that micro level, how these issues hurt and help them. Okay. And, and you know, what do you mean hurt, you know, and help? Well, my kid's dyslexic. And uh, he has off the charts social emotional skills, and he has off the charts hands eye coordination engineering skills, and uh, he it is unbelievable the level the maturity and the development in those areas. It's it's really pretty incredible. Um, I could die a happy mother just by knowing he's, you know, so social and so well liked. And you know, we have to teach our kids where those breakdowns are. Okay, so you have a hard time reading. What's the best time for you to read? When should we not? What about this? What about that? You know, and how can you work this out for yourself? You know, really teaching them about themselves and then helping them in the problem solving process is critical because anytime somebody comes up with solutions on their own, they're going to be way more invested in it. So let's talk about some, we, we started this conversation with hope and I want to end with some hope. I want to talk about, you know, you, you talk about this vision of having 20 to 30 minutes a day in school dedicated to um, really doing things differently. Um, you've talked about uh, the hope of parents and teachers doing some self-care with something as simple as breathing work. So can you just go into a little yeah. bit of what the solutions could be? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, here's our reality, right? We don't, we shouldn't be soapboxing that everybody is totally stressed out. What are we going to do to talk about well, what the heck we're going to do? Okay. That's, that's what I'm all about, right? Because 
we already know we're at a high highest stress. Okay, thank you, APA, for telling us that 70% of parents are like highly mm -hmm. distressed right now due to the pandemic. Okay, it's great. What are we going to do? So really simple solutions is for every school in America to take 15 to 30 minutes. Okay, you only need 15 minutes. Um, I want to give them some time to acclimate and to do mindfulness activities, to do breath work, meditation, yoga. Why? We have to get our nervous system out of this hyper state. No learning is going to occur. We're going to be flooded with emotional issues. It is going to be such a distress uh, group of individuals, teachers, kids, for a number of years. This has been stressful. This has been traumatic for people. We have had the Wild West educationally. We've had a disruption of education. And our, our parents, I mean, you know, we just did a, another meeting. There wasn't anybody in that room who was less than a seven on the stress meter when four and under is normal, right? So nobody is taking care of themselves. And these are simple things that if we could work proactively, our kids can learn better, they can feel better, and they can be more successful. So I just wish that this is what's going to happen. I think it's eventually going to happen because I think they're they're going to, you know, do it reactively. Um, but we must protect our nervous system as little as 10 minutes a day of things like breath work and meditation and yoga and a lot of other things I talk about in my book, It's Going to Be Okay, have a dramatic positive impact on our brain functioning our physical and mental health. I love that. I love that it's it's not about, you know, bubble baths and manicures all the time. It's not yeah. about taking a mental health day. No. Um, it's about consistency and in small increments to keep our nervous system regulated. And that's why I'm excited to read your books. I, I'm a nerd when it comes to those things. I love to look at it. I mean, I'm totally going to call myself out that my stress level has been at, at a constant high level to the point where, you know, I'm like, oh, I, I need to get serious about this because I'm in a habit of being stressed now, instead of being in a habit of lowering it, I'm in a yes. habit of being in high stress. High stress. And you know, your body knows no difference between good and bad stress. Like I'm in the super exciting book launch, but even Dr. Rowe, and I'm really, really doing things for myself every single day, breath work, meditation, PMF, biofeedback, every day. And I do big things, get a massage, two hour massage late tonight. Um, but it doesn't matter. I know my nervous system is jacked up. Who was up at one o'clock in the morning last night from one to 3am? That's hello. That's my body saying you got too much going on. So there's a plan and I'm going to get back on track, but it's just like working out. You can't go to the gym once a week and think you're going to be felt you know, or healthier, right? Your blood, blood sugar and blood pressure is going to be lower. You got to do something every day and it doesn't have to be two hour massage. Okay. It ha it's just 10 minutes a day. That's what the research shows us. So, you know, I charge everybody to take 30 days of doing 10 minutes a day of breath work or meditation or yoga and chart on a scale of zero to 10, what your stress levels are. And there is no way if you're really are doing this seven days a week by the 30 days, you're, you're going to be significantly improved, hopefully within the normal range. It doesn't mean you can't have some major clinical stress going on in your family. You're going to have to do even more to counter that.
You know, and I love that. You wrapped it right back around to data. You're like, take data on yourself for 30 take days on, on, your, on a scale of one to 10. Let's just go back to data and let's yeah. color code it. And hopefully we see some progress in ourselves so we can reduce our stress. Oh, so we can see it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And you're yeah. like, well, did I, did I actually feel any better? Or, you know, sometimes people come to me and they do neurofeedback, Catherine, and they're like, I'm not sure that if it was the neurofeedback, or it just happened to be developmental growth. And I'm like, so, so for 10 years, you've been working on this in these eight weeks, you, you had like a 40% increase in, you know, being calm and reduction in behaviors. I'm telling you, it's a neurofeedback buddy. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, we take the data really yeah. helpful for people to see what happens. Right. So, um, which is great. I love that so much. I'm going to encourage everybody to go grab Dr. Rowe's book. I'll make sure that wherever you're watching this, there's a link directly to it. It's going to give you a, a ridiculous amount of information that you are going to have so much uh, new knowledge backed up by science, backed up by case studies, backed up by real stuff that works. If there's anything about Dr. Rowe that we know is that she is a straight shooter. She's going to tell you like it is. She's going to give you things that work. And then it's going to be up to you to put that into practice. Yeah. And you know, if you need help doing that, I'm going to encourage you again to find the links that are that are around here go find dr Rowe. go find her other resources that are available um it's a, a fantastic support in so many different ways if you sit at an iep table you need dr Rowe in your life to make sure that you are taking care of yourself and of course that we are taking care of our students and children in the way that they need to be taken care of if you want to continue this conversation i'm going to encourage you to hop over to special that's where we can um, dive deeper you're going to find an entire conversation that we had with Dr. Rowe. I'm telling you, we just scratched the surface right here. So we're going to continue that conversation. And uh, until next time, everyone, thank you for being part of the Special Education Inner Circle podcast. Dr. Rowe, thanks for being here. Thank you. And you know, everybody, just a lot of hope and belief is where it starts.